Thank you. It is both highly ironic and highly instructive that Jesus should have been sent to his death at the encouragement of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's ironic because they should have known better. They were the ones who most often and most intently looked into the Bible and knew the most about it in their entire generation. And that they should have missed it so far is also instructive. Because we who also want to look into our Bibles and be guided by them in this generation could likewise make serious miscalculations even in the reading of it. It seems that what happened in part at least for the Pharisees was they had an idea of what they wanted in a Messiah. And they were disappointed, bitterly disappointed. And they read into the text of the Old Testament what they hoped would happen in their contemporary situation with the Roman government ruling over them. They wanted, as we know, a political leader who would throw off the Roman authorities and demonstrate his power on earth and re energize the nation of Israel so that it would be a prominent place, have a prominent place in the world once more. But this was not promised or predicted in the Old Testament. They should have known better. We don't want to make the same mistake. Our purpose in looking into Isaiah's last chapters is not to see how badly the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law missed the mark but as a safeguard against our own missing of the mark in the portrait of Christ that is given there. And we said many times that the the Lord Jesus can be seen on all the pages of Scripture, and he is the fulfillment of every promise. But there are certain sections of the Bible which provide portraits of him more clearly and more distinctly. One of them can be found toward, well, sprinkled throughout the book of Revelation, where he appears riding on a horse with great power and majesty, with eyes that burn in robes of white and dripping with blood. In other cases, he appears in the Old Testament, it seems, as a theophany, a, a presentation of Christ way before his incarnation. And of course, most famously, we have him displayed for us in the Gospels. And when we think of Jesus Christ, it is to the Gospels that our minds most normally turn. But all they had, all Anna and Simeon had when Jesus was brought to them after his birth, all they had for a full picture of who he was, was the Old Testament. And it was enough for them to see clearly who he was. But no greater place can that portrait be found than in Isaiah 40 and following. Last week, as Kevin introduced, and this week as we look more closely into it, we come to these so-called songs of the servant. And they are our focus now as we come to the Lenten pre-Easter celebration. This morning from Isaiah 42, you see an outline on pages 10 and 11. Here is my servant. Here is my servant, whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. Now we know who he's talking about. What does he say? 
I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth, and in his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you, and will make you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let us bow. Thank you, Lord, for these words. May they be ever true in our hearts, and may they shape and mold us so that we might drive away idolatry and foolishness, and that we might not carry in our minds a false picture of who you are, or create in our hearts, out of our own aspirations, a God that is simply a, a, a fabrication. Instead, O oh Lord, live by your Spirit and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this figure beginning to be described in Isaiah, this rather mysterious figure, this servant, and we get just sketchy indications of. And well, it's, it's understandable that one might want to run to the New Testament where there's all the fullness of these things, because then we can see more clearly. Who wouldn't want to bring a, an item into focus more fully, putting on glasses or looking through a microscope or telescope, so that one might more clearly apprehend what was going on? However, as a safeguard against our misapprehensions, we also appreciate the Old Testament. And we don't throw it away and say, now that the new has come, the old has no value. That's the Marcionite heresy. It was condemned in the early centuries, and yet we still are in danger of repeating it. The Old Testament does live, it is real, and it is extremely helpful. And, I, and part of the purpose in doing this study in Isaiah in, during the Lenten season is to increase our appreciation for Christ by looking at some of the intimations and indications and sketches of the Old Testament which will fill out and enliven and enrich the fullness that we have in the New. So what do we see? These prophecies, as I say there at the beginning of the opening paragraph, tell us some things about Jesus that the Gospels do not tell us or that, or that the Gospels reinforce more fully. But here we see them in a, in a beginning way. Just as, the, just as the acorn has all of the plant DNA of the oak, so in the Old Testament we have all of the DNA of the fullness of Christ to be fully displayed later. And to see it now is not only thrilling, but enriching. Because we've heard again and again of the Jesus of Galilee and the stories that he told and the things that he did. But we are not so familiar with the beautiful portrait we find in Isaiah. So we turn and what do we see? 
Here is my servant whom I uphold, verses 1 and 2. My chosen one in whom I delight. This is on purpose. This is something that's coming about as a result of a plan. It's moving forward. It's coming to fruition because someone's making it happen. These are not just the uh, confusing events of history, which men struggle to work out and understand. These are the purposive events of Christ's redemption, of the work of God from all eternity to bring a Savior into the world. This is my servant whom I behold, uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I read just verse 1, or just that part of verse 1, and you think, ah, okay, the Pharisees are, are cheering it on. Let's have some justice here. Let's throw off the Romans. Let's return to the days of David when there was great revival and when the name of Israel was feared among the nations. We've heard too much of Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia. Let's go back to those golden days. But notice he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. And a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That doesn't sound political. That doesn't sound militaristic. It doesn't sound like the kind of thing they were looking for or said they were. Now, of course, a king, a leader, brings justice. He puts things right. But this king is a servant. He will not shout or drown out another's voice in public. He does not seek to control public discourse. He is an unusual king indeed. Our president will deliver his State of the Union address this week in which he will try to lay out his plans and his administration for this year and try to begin to control the narrative in the media about how and what are important and how to go about them. It's part of our political tradition. This king doesn't try to control public discourse. He's an unusual king indeed. Over the years, he's going to be mistreated, rejected, and executed not assassinated by just a small plot like Caesar, but overthrown by a, a, a unified plot by both the Jews and the Gentiles, the Romans and the religious leaders are going to throw him out. Not a coup as such, but a total rejection. This, of course, is quoted at Jesus' baptism, uh, the one in whom I delight is an echo of these words. Sometimes the, the uh, quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament are not word-for-word word precise, but they call to mind similar phrases and much similar contexts. And this surely was on the Lord's mind as he spoke these words from heaven at the baptism of Jesus before John the Baptist. This is my beloved Son. This is the one in whom I delight. Isaiah 42. If you had paid attention, I'm announcing him. He's this, this is his inauguration. He's now taking and stepping forth onto the stage of history and will lead us. Pay attention to him. Application. Think on these things. A servant king. Have you ever seen a great person take advice? Have you ever seen them stoop to listen to the lowly? They have their advisors, but they're not the lowly. They don't listen to the lowly. When, do they, when they do, they become greater for not always acting great. 
And when they do, this is the dimmest echo of what we have in Christ Jesus. When we see him looking this way, we are in awe. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon on this subject in passage, said, He brought together an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Now, we don't talk like that today. But that's right. Here is, here is meekness and majesty. Here's a tremendous power and a marvelous tenderness. All brought together. If you have the Spirit, then these should be reproduced in you. If you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is one of the ways that you indicate it, that you replicate it. You carry his qualities and you represent his kingdom. Paul said we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And as ambassadors, we are, we are empowered to do nothing more than simply give the message of our king. We have no authority on our own. We are his representatives, just as the angels of heaven have no authority to adjust the message from God as they bring it to us. In the same way, we are not free to act and step on people and push people around and throw our weight around. And so ask your friends, are you bold and humble in a way that they see in you these diverse excellencies. Not just so humble that you will tolerate anything, no. But not so bold that people don't want to be around you because you're always smashing things, including people. Instead, you bring together in these diverse excellencies that Jesus did a servant power. Secondly, he's a healing leader, a king who leads us. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not crush out, uh, snuff out. These, this word bruised is a little confusing. It, it doesn't carry quite the same meaning most of the time for us. The meaning of bruised here is not the kind of uh, mild contusion you get when you uh, step around your bed trying to make the bed in the morning and you kick the corner of it. If I did that more often, maybe I wouldn't get so many contusions on my shins. Well, this is the kind of contusion for, why, for which we have uh, airbags. Because the concern is that under impact, the steering wheel will come into us, not breaking the skin, but breaking the organs, breaking the inside, the bones and the organs of the body. He was bruised. That's, how, that's the kind of wound that Jesus received. The kind of wound that didn't break the skin in the sense that it was deep and penetrating and really ended his life. And here we're speaking now in symbolic language. He was bruised for our iniquities. This is a deep contusion that injured or destroyed an internal organ, a death blow below the surface. Sometimes these were delivered in battle in the, in, in the days without uh, gunfire, and the person would die hours later, not, to the surprise of his comrades. What happened? He doesn't, he doesn't have a scratch on him. But he was bruised by the blunt end of something, and deep inside his, his internal organs were ruined. Jesus will not do that to another. He will not hide the wounds that he gives. He will receive them. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Jesus is attracted to hopeless cases. He loves the weak, the hurting, the vulnerable, those who are dying inside. He knows what to do with them. In Isaiah 61, it speaks of him binding up the brokenhearted. And that's what he does. This is a king who's interested in the welfare of his subjects in a very tender and specific way. And he knows that life can be hard and that life is, is damaging. And so when he gathers his flock, when he pulls to himself those who come to him, he is a gentle savior. He's not a, a staff sergeant or someone leading in boot camp. He is the gentle savior. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, we read of the prophet Elijah who is cracking and even suicidal. An angel is sent and cooks for him two meals and helps challenge Elijah to arise. We can hurt when we attempt to heal other people, but he never does. So this king who comes will always be gentle, even though sometimes what he does in his ministrations will hurt. It'll only be for our welfare that we might be brought together. And in the part of the process is this justice, this mishpat that is spoken of now again, of punishing evildoers and bringing shalom or absolute well-being. He does this, and he did it when he came. This passage is quoted in Matthew 12. Let me read just briefly of the context. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place, and many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell them who he was. This was to fulfill who, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, etc. Matthew, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, brings this particular section into Matthew 12, into his section of the gospel about the healing ministry of Christ. And all who came were not turned away because they couldn't afford it or because they, their, their numbers were too great, but no, because he loved them and he took time for them. Application. Notice Christ's mercy to bruised reeds. He's called a lamb, a hen. He's called like a dove, a physician. If Christ is so merciful not to break me, then I will not break myself with, with despair. Elijah nearly did. But the Lord sent him an angel and twice cooked for him and raised his spirits and brought him back. He came into the world to kiss your wounds. He is coming back to restore what we had lost at Eden, repairing all the broken parts of creation. So we should be loving and kind and not elitist. This isn't easy. We're to care about the hurting, but not grabbing power. Some political philosophies have said we should care for the poor, but it was their interest in getting power from that that motivated them. Let's raise up the poor, they said, so that they will follow us, and they will be then in our hands, easy to control. Jesus has no such agenda. He is interested in healing 
and helping. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the street. And someone who's hurting a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not stuff out. And so as his followers, we are not free to press down upon those who are hurting further condemnation and a, and a cold and thankless heart. We are called to be gentle, merciful, and patient because he was. Not so that we might control them, not so that they might be beholden to us, not so that they would follow us, but that they would see Jesus in us. So he's a servant king, he's a healing king, he's also a suffering king. He himself will be bruised and snuffed out. But it will not stop him from bringing justice on the earth. This is coming about, as it's very clearly stated in the, in the whole trajectory of this passage, as a result of a plan. See, here is my servant, whom I uphold, says the Father. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit, of course the Holy Spirit, upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And he will do that by dying. It will not be political reform. Had they read, they would have known. Had they read with eyes not clouded with what they wanted from him and from what they desired. It's so easy. We are all raised in a certain way. We have certain backgrounds and we all have certain images in our mind about what Christ is like. If I'm not careful... I have a German God. I'm seven-eighths German. I didn't know any other ethnic background growing up. I grew up in a German section of St. Louis from German immigrant families. And they do things a certain way. It's the right way. <laughs> it's the only way. I have a German God. He's stern. He's un, un, unbending. He's stubborn. He's all the things of the German people, you see, carried in my mind. I don't have the biblical picture of the New Testament, of the Old. And it must be driven into my mind. Now, I don't know what kind of God you have. But you're wrestling with accepting that God, either a stern and forbidding one or one who just forgives everything or, or whatever it is, with the biblical picture. And the biblical picture is so much richer. We have a servant king who, in, in, in fulfillment of the promises of Genesis 3.15, he preached to the servant that a descendant of Eve would come and will crush his head, but he would bruise his heel. And there's that word again, bruised. Now, a normal meaning of that term would mean a slight and unimportant injury. But in this instance, it was to the death. I suppose the selection of the heel is to show that really in the great context of things, it was a small wound. It wasn't a blow to the body that really set him down. It was a small wound, but nevertheless fatal. It didn't come close to touching his real power, but it did 
because he allowed it to, because he was willing to die for us, it did touch him in such a way as to bruise him deeply and to wound him. And of course, Isaiah 53 reminds us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. There it is again. But by his wounds, we are healed. So he serves by healing and by suffering. We deserve to be bruised, but he took our bruises so that now God sends into your heart his healing. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased, he says to his son. And his son then says to you, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will accept you. I will receive you unto myself. I will not break you. I will not bruise you. I will not cast you away as if you are to be discarded because you have failed. Knowing this, begins to heal our bruised hearts and sets us free. It's healing to know that I am loved that much. That I don't have a German God. That I have the living God. A God that no other religion of the world has adopted. They have a God who says, perform and get a verdict. We have a God who says, here's your verdict. You are free and forgiven because of what I did. Now perform. In thanksgiving. Court is adjourned. I am successful. I have purchased your pardon. Justice now is yours. Because I made it happen. Whatever your need is. Overcoming doubts and fears and guilt and pride. Put yourself in his care. He will not fail you. This is the strong opening salvo of the portrait of Jesus Christ that we have in the book of Isaiah after chapter 40. We will look again and again into this because tomorrow I will still have a German God (laughs) if I'm not careful. And tomorrow you will have whatever you're struggling with, with, well, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven images. You shall not have in your mind and in your heart a false view of God. The false view of God of the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law led them to make fools of themselves against the Son of Heaven. And we make fools of ourselves too because we don't learn from the portrait of Christ from the Scriptures. And so it is instructive. May the Lord bless us. May the one who was bruised for his people bring us healing. Let us pray. This day, O Lord, we come and we gather, thankful for the brightness of this February morning and for the warmth of this place in which we can meet. But most especially are we grateful that we have a living God who works and chips away at us, changing and transforming our misperceptions of him over the course of time. And we pray that during this Lenten season that we will focus more and more upon the portrait of Christ that is the true one, to be found in Revelation, to be found in every page of Scripture, to be found in the Gospels of the New Testament, and to be found here in the latter portions of Isaiah in such marvelous manner. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for healing us, for receiving those wounds, those bruises on our behalf. And may you receive our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.